from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your hosts, Kalita Leaquat and Kate Wilson. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. As we all know, the genetic counseling profession is rapidly growing, and at this time of year, we are welcoming a whole new graduating class into the genetic counseling workforce. Many of us know from experience that this transition can be challenging at times. Today, my co-host Kate will sit down with two genetic counselors to discuss these difficulties and their experiences with transitioning from student to practicing genetic counselor. First up, Kate is speaking with Divya Ramasandra, a genetic counselor in Chicago and co-author of An Exploration of Novice Genetic Counselors' Transitional Challenges. Commencement is just the beginning. And now, over to you, Kate. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. Divya, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. We're so glad that you could be here, and we're excited to talk more about your research study. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came up with the idea for doing this research study and why this topic. So it started off with just my experience my first year in grad school and this feeling of imposter syndrome and feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. And I started thinking, okay, does this suddenly go away when I graduate and I start working? Do I all of a sudden feel like I know 100% what I'm doing? So that's how the idea started to blossom. And I think there are some other folks that also wonder, when do I feel like maybe a quote unquote real genetic counselor? So tell me a little bit about what you found out in doing this study and how it touched on imposter syndrome or feeling like a true genetic counselor. Well, I found out it doesn't magically disappear, (laughs) first of all, that this is a really common feeling that novice genetic counselors have. I think there was a candidate who even used the term imposter syndrome. So that feeling like a real genetic counselor doesn't happen right at graduation, that depending on where you work and what the setting is, that there are a number of challenges that novice genetic counselors have that, you know, maybe they never thought they were going to have and that it posed different challenges within their first two years. And so in your study, you had defined novice as one to two years post-degree. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the study itself was set up and how you were able to get some of this feedback and insight from the genetic counselors you spoke with? Yeah, so originally when we started it, we thought, okay, we'll just send out a survey with demographics, but also multiple choice question with some text box for people to write in. But as we were looking for it, we realized it would be much more rich to actually have interviews with these candidates. So obviously that means that we can't survey as many people, but what we did is we sent out the demographic survey through NSGC and we tried to make a variety of clinical versus non-traditional gender, ethnicity, age, and location. So then based on that, we picked uh, about 15 candidates and then I did about half an hour to sometimes 45 minute interviews with them. And then from there, we transcribed the interviews and then started coding. 
went to different themes and categories. So it sounds like you started off with the initial demographic call, then transitioned into the more in-depth interviews. Did you feel like interviews really were the best format for this type of study to be able to get some of the insights that you were looking for? I think it really did because I was able to engage the participants and kind of open up their ideas and have them elaborate on what they meant and ask follow-up questions that gave me a lot more to work with than I think I would have gotten from just a text box. And in talking to some of those genetic counselors, what were some of the challenges or some of the transitional issues perhaps they faced within their first six months of working? So there were a number of different types. One of them was handling different clinical situations, and specifically psychosocial issues. So I think when you're a student doing rotations, you focus very much on the technical aspect. Okay, do I have the facts right? Am I answering all the questions? Did I cover everything? But then as you start working, you realize there's this huge psychosocial area, and that's when with time and experience, you start cultivating your skills. So there was candidate suicide. They just ended up in situations where they had patient conflict or weren't sure how to handle certain things, and they didn't have a supervisor to turn to and kind of say, help. So that was one thing difficult. And one candidate had said, early on, you can be very sensitive to patient feedback. So trying not to take a negative reaction or one negative experience to heart, I think that takes time to overcome. Another common theme was the idea of going solo. So I touched on it before, but suddenly walking into the room and being the authority figure, someone said, you know, you can't look over your shoulder and ask somebody for help. You're kind of the it person in the room, you know, it's you. You can't really tag back. One person also said that you go from a position where everyone is asking you questions to make sure that you're on the right track to a position where you're the authority and you're telling somebody else what to do and there's not necessarily that structured guidance to make sure you're doing the right thing. And that kind of all feeds into another theme, which is just the lack of confidence in their genetic counseling skills. So. One person said, like, I think at first it's a little bit of imposter syndrome. So worrying about, did I really do everything right? Did I say everything I was supposed to? And then just trusting yourself. So one person said it was a lot about trusting herself and trusting that she had the skills it took to be a good genetic counselor. Um, and within that, you know, one of the areas of difficulty was establishing oneself as a professional, not just with other providers, but with your colleagues. So. There was one candidate who ended up working at an institution that she had rotated at. She said, you know, some of the doctors made a couple comments of, oh, I didn't realize you were a real genetic counselor now. And that that was hard to keep on establishing herself as, nope, I'm not a student anymore. I'm your equal. I'm your coworker. And then even between her and her colleagues who used to be supervisors, she said there was a few times where they fell back into this student-teacher tone and relationship and just had to adjust to that. Another candidate said that when she entered into her institution, she was in a group of other experienced genetic counselors. And so her first instinct was to say, oh, like whatever they're saying is right. I'll just do whatever they're suggesting, whatever testing that has. 
instead of remembering that, hey, I've learned some new things in school. I'm kind of up to date on the most recent things happening and gaining that confidence of adding your idea or maybe adding an idea that's opposing somebody else's without, you know, lacking the confidence just because of your novice status. Another difficulty people had, and I think this is across the board with both experienced and novice genetic counselors, is the fact that many people do not know what a genetic counselor does and what we're qualified and skilled for. So there are a lot of candidates who were either the first genetic counselor at their institution or there weren't very many. They said they had to constantly educate providers on this is what I do. You know, one laboratory genetic counselor said she does a lot of testing utilization management. And so it was difficult in the beginning when providers would call her and say, well, why are you questioning the type of testing I'm doing? And she had to try and explain, you know, we're not trying to be roadblocks to you. We're just making sure that you're doing the most efficient and accurate testing. And that was difficult to, to do as a novice genetic counselor. One unique challenge that some candidates touched on was the idea of looking young to their patients. So a number of candidates said that they had doctors and patients kind of question them on their qualifications and their age. One candidate said that she felt like she had to dress extra professionally and look different to establish herself as the provider in the room and that she felt like she wasn't really being herself. Often patients will comment, oh, you're so young. Did you go to school for this? Um, and that can be kind of difficult, especially when they bring it up at the beginning of a session. And then you're kind of thrown off. So another category was just team dynamics. So that, again, kind of touches on the fact that a lot of providers don't know what a genetic counselor does. And trying to advocate for yourself, like, no, I'm not here just to do your testing. Like, I'm here to give my opinion. One candidate said that a doctor told her, when I call you in for testing, I expect that you're just going to do testing. And her frustration was, that's not how it works. You know, I'm here to do a risk analysis. I got my master's degree in helping figure out what the best test is. So those were some of the main challenges. Then there were some challenges of being in an untraditional role. So there was one candidate who did telehealth counseling and she said, you know, it was difficult because you had to make an extra effort, she felt like, to connect with her patient. You're not in the room to really gauge their um, physical attitude, that you have to take extra effort to build rapport with them. And that was one of the difficulties she had in this more untraditional role that I think is becoming a bigger and bigger field for us. And then some laboratory genetic counselors said just the fact that defining themselves as a real genetic counselor. So what is their relationship with clinical genetic counselors and questioning themselves, especially if they have to talk with their clinical colleagues about the testing that they're ordering. So that was a difficulty that genetic counselors in some untraditional roles had in that first six months. Well, and I think it's interesting when you mentioned some of these challenges, because I found myself relating to a lot of them, even though I've been out and doing this for a while now, but also practicing in different areas, you have those kind of same transitional challenges. I know in the study, you had talked about some of the transitional challenges that you looked at in other professions. 
how do these challenges that you heard about and talked about, how do they compare to some of the other fields that you looked at? So it turns out that this is pretty universal across a lot of fields, including business, occupational therapy, nursing. I found that nursing had a lot of similarities. So there was at some point a national trend of a high turnover rate in new graduates for nursing. And so they did a lot of studies to look at what is happening. And they found that a lot of novices were feeling like they were overwhelmed, that they didn't have the right guidance, the right mentorship. They had challenges just dealing with the student debt they had coming out of school, that that's a financial concern. And that is certainly true across all professions at this point. So they started to put together ideas of how to address this. And so there was one hospital in Texas where they had a 50% turnover rate in their first year nurses. And so they decided to implement this nursing residency program that consisted of classes to help nurses develop their critical thinking skills, decision-making skills, and professional development. Because a lot of the concerns that nurse, first-year nurses had was that they felt like they didn't have a lot of practical experience. So again, going to some of the things like the psychosocial counseling or handling problems with coworkers. So this residency program involved them having some general classes about those professional development skills, practical skills, and then they had specialized classes to whatever department they were in, whether it's ER, OB, something like that. And then they also set up a mentorship program with an experienced nurse. And so that program went on for about a year. And by the end of the year, the turnover rate went from 50% to 13%. So quite, quite a drop. And they calculated a return on investment to see, okay, how much is this costing the hospital? Because they did compensate the experienced nurses for being mentors and also the first year nurses for going to these classes. And they found that, you know, it was beneficial to do this residency program. They saved a lot more money having a lower turnout rate than trying to replace all these nurses. So I thought that was really interesting and kind of giving light on how can we better help novice professionals ease into their career. I think the study that you cite is interesting because it not only talks about different ways to make the transition easier, but then also how to have some of these programs be um, supported or subsidized by the institution. And I think also it's, it's interesting that you talk about kind of the common thread between a lot of these healthcare professions is not necessarily not knowing what to do. It's more skills like psychosocial or interacting with coworkers, learning the work environment, things that you kind of have to learn by doing. I know that in the study too, you talked about some of the people you interviewed discussed advice or resources or things that they would recommend. So can you tell us a little bit about what the interviewees had to say that they found helpful or that they think would be helpful? So that question about resources kind of came up from my practice runs with people because I found myself asking, okay, well, if you could do this from the beginning, what would have helped you? And I think a really strong theme was mentorship, not just from experienced genetic counselors, but the ability to connect with other novice genetic counselors. You know, a lot of 
candidates said that they relied on their classmates or other counselors that had just graduated as well because sometimes it was easier to ask them questions without feeling like you don't know what you're doing and then also being able to say hey i'm experiencing this and feeling this and and somebody else saying well yeah so am i so normalizing it and then the experienced genetic counselor being able to bounce ideas off of and seek advice from so for a lot of individuals they had to reach out and make this connection themselves but some of the recommendations were if institutions have a large enough genetic counseling group that may be setting up some of that mentorship when a novice genetic counselor comes in like a designated person that they can go to at least for the first six months and if you're at an institution where that's a little harder you know some people recommended that whatever area you're working in that that local genetic counseling chapter actually try to organize mixers and maybe professional development classes and events for novice genetic counselors to help connect people in that area. So that was one big thing, the mentorship. Another resource that genetic counselors thought would have been helpful is a practical one. So, you know, there's a lot of things like insurance, billing, what testing labs, people use that you just learn when you get to that institution. But I think a lot of people were saying it would cut down so much time if they had some kind of handbook or orientation guide that they could use in the beginning. And I know for me, when I came into my job, one of the genetic counselors there had been on leave before. So she had created this big binder with all of these testing instructions and which lab do you send at what gestational age. Um, for the other nurses and MAs to use, and I use that all the time. So having something there to just cut down on all the time it takes to kind of learn those things from the beginning was something that candidates said would be really helpful. In terms of advice, one of them was to identify a mentor. So either somebody in your institution, somebody through the mentorship program at NSGC, or some candidates reached out to their previous supervisors or professors. That one piece of advice that I thought was, was really nice was somebody said, you know, recognize your value as a genetic counselor. You are marketable and that, you know, your first job might not be your ideal job, but, it, but you're so much closer to finding what you really want. I thought that was a really nice piece of advice. Um, another piece of advice was become comfortable not knowing the answer. I think it, we all learn that at some point that you're going to be in a session and they're going to bring up a genetic condition you've never heard before. And at first it can be very daunting to tell a patient, oh, I, I haven't heard that before. But knowing that you're not going to learn every single genetic condition, every single fact in graduate school. And it's okay to say to somebody, you know, that's a great question. Let me get back to you or let me look that up. And so becoming comfortable not knowing something. And then another piece of advice was being confident in the knowledge that you have and the training that you have. Reminding yourself that you graduated from a master's program, you have the skills that you need to be a genetic counselor and that there will always be a huge learning curve for all novices. That is not because of your personal skill set. That's just the learning curve that is there for every new professional. Part of this study, I also asked questions about challenges in people's personal lives because I think that very much affects 
your professional life as well. And that idea of making sure that if you're in a new area, you find a community outside of work, you find ways to relieve stress outside of work will really help with kind of alleviating burnout and things like that. There was a lot of resources that institutions can start picking up on. So when I published this paper, I decided to send it to my manager at my work, and she actually ended up forwarding it on to human resources to kind of use as um, a way to help new healthcare professionals transition. And that is something I really wanted my study to help foster is for not only the genetic counseling community to start thinking of ways to help our students transition to professional life, but also institutions. Because as we know, genetic counselors are hard to find. And so you want to keep them when you get them. And so what are ways that you can make sure that that happens? I think that's a good point mentioning, you know, the institution's role to try to help make that transition smooth. And so I think that's awesome that you were then able to take the study that you did and then utilize it in your work setting where you are now. One thing that I thought was interesting and I'm curious to know a little bit more about is you were doing this study as part of your thesis. So your second year, you're interviewing for positions. How did doing this study give you some insights about what to do during the interview phase and trying to find a position? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it really did impact how I found my first job and my interviewing process. So it was kind of interesting as I was interviewing these candidates because I almost had like a personal stake. I mean, I was very interested in what challenges they had because it's like giving me a peek into my future. And so what it really made me realize is that you're commonly told that you know, you're interviewing the institution just as much as they're interviewing you. That's really easy to forget, especially with your first job. You're just like, please hire me. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people think of it as in salary. Okay, which one is going to give me the best salary? But this really made me sit back and think, okay, what do I want in my first job? Knowing my personality and my experiences, what do I need from an institution? And so it forced me to start asking questions I wouldn't have asked. Um, asking, okay, how many genetic counselors are in the system? How do they interact? Do you have a mentorship program? I often ask providers, okay, what is your relationship like with a genetic counselor? What roles do the genetic counselor take? What roles do you take? And it gives you an insight about how much they know about what a genetic counselor does and what your future dynamics might look like. I think it also impressed some of my interviewers because they could tell I was really asking questions about the work environment and that I was very much engaged in this process and, and not just saying, oh yeah, I have no more questions. So I gathered from that that students should really sit down and think about what environment they want to work in. Are, are they somebody that's okay being the only genetic counselor at that institution or are they people who need mentorship and would like to work in an institution with other genetic counselors? Even the idea of working at an institution where you were a student and kind of thinking about, all right, these might be some challenges I have going forward. Am I up to that task? I really hope that if people read this, if students read this, that it makes them sit back and think about where they really want to work. And I, I think that's one of the things that really 
interests us about the study is that it was something that people who are in school can learn a little bit more insight-wise what it's like to make that transition for those people who are looking at changing, gives them some ideas of things to focus on and things they may not have thought about before when interviewing or doing the change. And then for for folks like myself that are on the other side, it's thinking, okay, well, how can I help those people coming in now to feel supported, feel connected? Because sometimes you kind of forget what it's like. I think this is a good way to remind folks that have been out there for a while about some of the challenges. And then, like you said, this is something tangible too. You can pass on to your institution. I really appreciate the time that you've taken to, to be with us today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or highlight from the study that we didn't get to? I think the only thing I would say is that there is room for future research on this. I think one aspect that uh, I was really interested in is what are the unique challenges that genetic counselors and untraditional roles have? So, you know, a lot of the resources I was talking about are universal for genetic counselors, but what are some of the experiences that laboratory genetic counselors have? How can those organizations tailor their practice to them? And I think it would be interesting to implement some kind of residency program, either within an institution or by the local chapters, where they have these guided professional development classes, mixers that are aimed specifically at novice genetic counselors. So I think that would be some really interesting directions to take the study. I think you're right. And that you've given a lot of people thinking about their next projects, some ideas to think about. Thank you so much, Divya, for being with us today and and taking time to chat with us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. To read Divya's full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling, visit nsgc.org slash Journal of Genetic Counseling. Next up, I'm sitting down with Jesse Ross, a certified genetic counselor at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, specializing in breast cancer and pediatric adolescent genetic counseling. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for sitting down to share your experiences with us. Of course. I'm excited to share what I've learned and how I've gotten to where I'm at now because I'm definitely at a different place than I was when I first got out of grad school. Well, I think that's kind of one of the the first questions that I want to explore is making that transition from grad school. So you did that about three years ago. Mm -hmm. So tell me what were some of your biggest challenges during that transition and going from being a student to a new counselor? Yeah, I would say the transition was really difficult, mostly in terms of my confidence levels, because I'm so used to having a supervisor sitting there approving of everything I do, and all of a sudden you're just left in a room with a patient and nobody to turn to to make sure you're ordering the right tests and saying the right things. You have nobody there to check you if you do something wrong. So it was really hard for me to actually feel confident in what I was doing and saying with my patients because I felt just like a student still. I, I work at the place that I did my training at. I even remember at one of my first sessions, I actually looked to the back of the room because I couldn't actually believe that there was nobody there helping me. There was nobody waiting outside the door to make sure that I was saying the right thing. So I think just learning how to have confidence in my decision making was honestly the most difficult part. And it took a while to 
actually feel like I knew what I was doing and I could make decisions on my own. So it sounds like it wasn't necessarily confidence in your knowledge of the condition and working with the patient because you had done some of that during your training, but it's more of being the sole person responsible, the sole professional in that setting. Yeah, I think my training program, I'm very biased, but I think it trained me amazingly for what I was doing. I, I didn't feel like I couldn't do the job. I just always felt like I was supposed to have something to fall back to, to just give me that reassurance that I was doing the right thing. Because all my life I've had teachers or supervisors or somebody just giving me reassurance. And it was really the first time that I had to reassure myself that I knew what I was doing and that I could do the job on my own without always having somebody saying, yep, you did that right. Or maybe you should consider this other test. So it was really hard to just take that step to do it on my own for the first time. Yeah. And that can be nerve wracking, I think, to have the, the safety net not be there. And you mentioned that where you work currently was where you did your training. What was that like to then be in the same setting, but no longer a student? My colleagues are wonderful and never intentionally made me feel any different than a regular colleague, but I was sitting in the room with people that just a month prior were my supervisors and, and giving me feedback. It was really hard for me to internally switch over to realize, okay, they are no longer people giving me feedback. They're now my colleagues and people that, of course, I can bounce ideas off of, but they're no longer grading me. They're no longer critiquing me. Now they're my support system. Now they're my colleagues and my friends. And so it was really hard for me to personally switch over to that, just sitting in the same room as these people that I had a different relationship with. And you had mentioned too that you were used to having feedback of your supervisors as well as teachers. So I know that you came straight from undergraduate into graduate training. So three years ago, that's your first time kind of really entering the workforce. What experiences did you have entering the workforce? There's a lot of differences from just carrying a job in college and undergrad or grad school to actually being in your career. And there's some typical things that people face, like figuring out finances, figuring out how to officially move states, because as a student, you don't have to get residency in the state you're studying in. So all of that was really difficult to just navigate, having to learn how much life insurance a person needs and what retirement benefits mean. But honestly, the hardest part for me was figuring out what my new goals in life were, because typically in my life, I've always been looking forward to the next step in school. After high school, I went straight to college. Right after college, I went straight to grad school. And I always was shooting for a new goal. And I felt kind of down after I graduated grad school that I thought to myself, I'd reached the top and now there's no place else to go because I've reached that goal I've been searching for forever. So my biggest transition into the workforce was figuring out how can I set goals in my career that are not necessarily school focused, not necessarily working for a degree, but actually how can I build my career instead of just being stagnant. So it sounds like you were able to then continue thinking about 
goal setting, but instead of finding those next steps and those goals for yourself, you have a little bit more open road ahead of you. It's not always set in stone. Yeah, there is no set next thing I was supposed to be doing. I had reached all these goals I've been looking for. And it took me a little bit to realize that I can have other goals because for the first six months of working, I was kind of stagnant and I, I just realized, okay, I've, I've done everything I've wanted to do. I'm now a genetic counselor. I've now passed boards. And once boards were done and passed, I sat there and I was like, well, what now? What's next? And as somebody that tends to be very goal oriented, I knew I had to find new goals, whether that be in my personal life or at work with starting new clinics. I had to realize that the goals I have in my career are probably going to be much different than the goals I had in school because so much of my drive in school was to get good grades and in the workforce, you're not typically getting graded for what you do. So you have to set your own goals that still make you feel like you're reaching and striving for something bigger and better. And I think that that's important insight, uh, especially for people that are newer GCs or those that are in their second year of training. Is there some other advice that you would give these novice genetic counselors or the second years about to become genetic counselors? Yeah, I would say a few different things. First and foremost is no matter where you've been trained at, no matter what genetic counseling program you're at or just graduated from, the program did an amazing job training you to be a genetic counselor. And nobody knows genetic counseling better than we do. So physicians, other people we work with, even geneticists don't know how to be a genetic counselor as well as we do. So always have confidence that you know what you know. And even if it doesn't feel like it, even if it feels like you're being an imposter or just acting, you do know you were trained well, you graduated for a reason. So always have confidence in that. Don't let other people make you think that you're not confident or that you don't know what you've been trained to do. And with that comes making sure that you set boundaries for yourself with your work. I personally think I have a good work-life balance, but it took me starting from day one having that balance. Because if I had been responding to emails late at night, then everybody I work with would still expect me to do that. But being able to put your foot down and saying, no, I'm not going to be doing these things that are either outside of my scope of practice or outside of when I should be working, it really sets you up for success long-term because people won't have non-realistic expectations of your work. And I think that that's also something that everyone struggles with is, is the boundaries and making sure that you are doing the work that you need to be doing, but then also taking care of yourself. So it sounds like that was something that you were mindful of when you started working. Yes. And I give a lot of credit of that to our program, our program directors, they helped us understand that as second years. And if I didn't have that as I think most genetic counselors are, we tend to be achievers. We like to please other people and we like to help others. So anytime we feel like we can do that, we usually jump in and we volunteer for things and we agree to pretty much anything people ask us to do. But sometimes that takes an emotional toll on yourself or a time commitment to yourself. And so I think one thing that we were taught in grad school is it's okay to say no 
especially if it's something that you're not interested in doing or if it's something that's outside of your time commitment at work. Because if you say yes to absolutely everything, then you're going to burn out really quickly. So learning what is important to you, say yes to, of course, but it's okay to say no or to say, I can't do that this time. Please think about me the next time around. But just as most genetic counselors tend to be pretty type A and tend to be searching for more things to do and always helping others, it's sometimes hard to say no to things that you probably should say no to. It is, and it's definitely a learned skill, but it sounds like you had had some discussions at least prior to starting your job, so you were thinking about it. Is there anything that you wish you had known before you started your job, so something that maybe caught you by surprise? Yeah, I think one thing that I'm lucky about is training at the same program where I'm working. I knew a lot of the logistics, and I think that's what a lot of people struggle with is figuring out what their new institution is going to be like. So I was fortunate enough to not necessarily bump into those roadblocks. But the biggest thing that I learned is that not every genetic counselor is perfect. And as a student, you see all these amazing genetic counselors doing amazing things. You see them do what we think as perfect psychosocial moments. You praise them, you put them up on a pedestal. And I work with some amazing genetic counselors that as a student, I thought they were perfect. They probably never made a mistake. They never were upset. They were always doing everything right. And now as a colleague, I've seen those same individuals um, calling up other people, asking for help, asking how to correct a mistake they've made, even shedding tears over situations. And as a student, you just put everybody on a pedestal because they're training you, you look up to them. And what I've learned is that we all make mistakes all of the time, even people that have been genetic counselors for 15, 20 years make mistakes. The first time somebody called me to ask me a question made me realize, wow, I've actually made it as a genetic counselor. Somebody is now asking me for advice. But ultimately, we're all human. We all make mistakes. No matter whether you just started or whether you've been here 20 years, you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. There's people that have made those same mistakes before you that will be able to help you fix those mistakes. I think that's good for people to hear because I think sometimes we as genetic counselors do feel pressure to, to get everything right from the get-go and maybe not necessarily admit that things might be less than perfect. But also part of it too, it's a little bit challenging in training. There's so much to get through and so much to learn. So I think it's good to know that people have had it happen to them. Uh, and like you said, it's part of it now is kind of bringing you and your colleagues together and then they're helping you by mentoring or shepherding you through some of these challenges. Yeah, there'll be lots of people listening that also have been practicing for a while and aren't fresh into the workforce out of grad school. But if you are supervising, one thing I have learned as a supervisor now is I do debrief with my students even after they've just observed. And I've told them what I think I should have done better at and what I would want to work on because I think it helps my students understand that you're going to continuously be growing as a genetic counselor. It's not like the second you graduate, you're all of a sudden this all-star genetic counselor, and it doesn't hit at five years or 10 years, but you're constantly going to be changing and growing. So I try to point out to my students 
situations where I wish I would have said something a little differently because I think it helps bring me back as a person to the student rather than just being a supervisor that they kind of idealize as the perfect genetic counselor. And I think that's a wonderful point to make is that as somebody who's a more seasoned GC, you're always evolving, you're always changing, um, and you are thinking about some things that you've done and going back over some things and learning from it. So I think that that's a wonderful point. Are there any other types of recommendations or guidance that you would give our audience about working in the field of genetic counseling? I have a million pieces of, of little tidbits of advice I could give, but one thing that I found really helpful, and I will caveat this with, that I love all of my friends that are genetic counselors, and I love that genetic counseling communities across the country are so tight-knit, but I think it's really important to not only find one person you can look up to in the field or two people that can be a mentor to you, but also to meet people outside of the field. I moved from Missouri to Texas for grad school and I immediately became friends with my grad school friends. And then when you graduate, you immediately become friends with your coworkers and the other genetic counselors. But sometimes it can be overwhelming to just be around genetic counselors all the time because we tend to be very emotional, very empathetic. And sometimes you just want to have people that you can vent to about work that don't understand what you do or to even go do things that you don't have to talk about work. So I think it's important to find a couple people within the field that can mentor you through difficult times, but also have friends outside of the field that you can just be yourself with and not have to talk about work or not have to analyze the emotions of a situation like most genetic counselors tend to do. I think it comes with that psychosocial training and that a lot of the genetic counselors are wonderful listeners, very empathetic, but that sometimes there is something to be said about, you know, not necessarily looking at things through a genetic counseling lens. So it sounds like for you, the ideal is to have friends both within and outside of the field. Yeah. And I think we all go into this career because we're passionate about genetics, but we are all passionate about other things as well. So don't feel like you have to only be passionate about your career. You can continue to do those things outside of work that drive you and make you feel happy because that'll make you a better genetic counselor if you're doing all that self-care and doing things that are important to you. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today, Jesse. Is there anything else that you need to share? I would just say make sure everybody remember why you go into this field because there'll be days that you feel exhausted from it or burnt out or you might feel like you're not succeeding or you might not have confidence on a given day. But we all went into this field for a reason and that reason will be different for each person. I love it. Thank you so much, Jesse. Of course. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. Visit www.nsgc.org forward slash JGCCEU to learn how to earn CEUs for listening to the podcast series. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors and made possible by the NSGC podcast subcommittee. Interested in joining the podcast subcommittee? Contact NSGC at NSGC.org to learn how to get more involved. 
I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.